You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Information wants to be free. Information also wants to be expensive. That tension will not go away. That's a quote often attributed to American writer Stuart Brand. And that quote got bandied around a lot in the 90s, especially after the movie Hackers came out. You know the one. Hype the planet! Hype the planet! Shut up and get in the car! Now, information wants to be free was certainly the zeitgeist of the time with the nascent public internet. Some might argue that has changed now. But still, fast forward to now and bring that sentiment to space. There's growing agreement that when it comes to space situational awareness, that information needs to be free, too. T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Today is June 14th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-minus. Commerce in talks with industry about space situational awareness. The UN says the time is right for better space governance. China is developing a new spaceport. Beppe Colombo says hi to Mercury for the third time. And my interview with Jack Cohen, program and mission manager at Astro Digital. Stay with us. And here's our Intel briefing for today. Right now, the Secure World Foundation's Summit for Space Sustainability is underway in New York, and there are some interesting announcements coming from this event. One of them might seem a little wonky, but we think it could have a potentially big impact down the line. The U.S. Commerce Department has said it has two meetings scheduled next month, including one with industry satellite operators, to figure out how to better share spacecraft location data with the goal of eventually formalizing more effective space traffic coordination. Okay, meetings might not be headline news, but hey, better coordination and knowledge sharing for what's on orbit and where is direly needed, and it can't be siloed in military, civil, or industry facilities alone. According to Breaking Defense, as the Commerce Department chips away at this growing problem— Right now, they're trying to suss out where exactly space situational awareness data is going to come from and how much that data does or doesn't 
reflect the ground truth, or I guess I should say orbit truth. But it's a delicate balance for the Commerce Department because, as you might expect, there's a growing private sector market for just this kind of information. The eventual goal is for the Office of Space Commerce to ingest multiple sources of information, aggregate it, and release it into their planned traffic coordination system for space without also putting space situation awareness businesses, well, out of business. It's a delicate balance to be sure. And speaking of keeping an eye on orbit, another bit of news from the Secure World Foundation's event this week. Guy Ryder, who is the United Nations Undersecretary General for Policy, said we're in a prime moment over the next year or so for countries to improve collaboration on their space activities. Ryder said in advance of the September 2024 Summit of the Future Conference at the United Nations, the organization is looking specifically to address improving space governance, especially regarding peaceful uses of outer space and the growing hazard of space debris. The intervening 15 months until that UN conference is the perfect time to, quote, accelerate space diplomacy and advance the governance issue, says Ryder. Chinese Space News is reporting that construction of a new complex at a spaceport in Hainan province has started. The new area will be for solid rocket launch missions and is the third part of the spaceport development to be built in Wenchang City. The spaceport site is aiming to be completed in 2024 and is expected to host commercial Chinese space launches in the same year. Now, it's the planet closest to the sun, but it isn't the hottest. As you probably well know, that title is held by Venus. But the small planet of Mercury, which is just slightly larger than our moon, is about to have a brief visit from Bepi Colombo, The joint mission by the European Space Agency and Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency will be holding its third of six flybys of the egg-shaped planet this weekend. Bepi Colombo was launched on 2018 on an Ariane 5 rocket, and is expected to lose enough energy to be captured into Mercury's orbit in 2025. And speaking of Ariane rockets, Ariane Space has signed a memorandum of understanding with Orbex. The two European launch providers are looking to collaborate on future missions. The agreement aims to increase the joint capabilities and serve the customers of both providers. And we'll bring you more when that MOU becomes a joint mission. On to some investment news now. And the venture capital company Airbus Ventures has been busy supporting two space startups this week. First, they announced a stake in Singapore-based Zero Error Systems, which specializes in semiconductor solutions for space and power management applications. And today, Airbus Ventures announced its support for hypersonic space plane manufacturer Venus Airspace. The announcements did not mention how much the Silicon Valley-based VC put into both companies, but it's certainly interesting to see which companies are considered by them in early seed rounds. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed a new law establishing the creation of the Texas Space Commission. The commission will oversee $350 million U.S. dollars in Texas taxpayer dollars towards the development of the space industry in the Lone Star State. Texas, aside from being home to NASA's Space Center in Houston, is also home to many new space startups including the previously mentioned Venus Aerospace and Firefly Aerospace, along with SpaceX's launch facility in Boca Chica, and spaceports in Van Horn for Blue Origin, Midland, and Houston, with many others under consideration. Texas is the third U.S. state to establish a space commission, and it's going to be managed by a board with nine seats, which will include the governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker of the house. 
And continuing with the theme of aerospace investment, Deloitte, a global audit consulting tax and advisory services company, has released their first of several reports on X-Tech Futures series. The series of reports aim to assist organizations to identify their role in the space economy through three chapters and ultimately urge companies to come up with space strategies. The overall summary we got from it is that the aerospace industry is about to grow expeditiously in the coming years and move into new sectors. See, we summarized it in a few words for you. But if you want to get into more details, then we've got a link for you in our show notes, space.n2k.com. And uh, if you've not had enough of me for today, you can also listen to my roundup of the week's space news on NPR's Are We There Yet? podcast with Brendan Byrne. If the show's not already in your podcast rotation, we've included the link in the selected reading section on our website, space.n2k.com, along with links to all of the stories that we've covered today and a few that we didn't have time to as well. That covers it for our Intel briefing for today. Coming up next is my conversation with Astro Digital Program and Mission Manager, Jack Cohen. And hey, T-Minus crew... If you find this podcast useful, could you please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and short review in your favorite podcast app? It'll help other space professionals just like you to find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler, You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Jack Cohen, Program and Mission Manager at Astro Digital. So I start off with asking, what does Astro Digital do? So I actually joined Astro Digital right in 2019 when uh, the company had just pivoted from developing the Landmapper Constellation to being a, a bus provider to third-party or external customers. So since then, we've been working with uh, a lot of private industry folks as well as a couple government ones and civil sector ones. And it's been exciting to see uh, that pivot. One of the things that Astro Digital does that specifically that you work on is the end-to-end delivery of spacecraft programs. Now, a lot is in that statement. (laughs) So what does that mean? And this is not a small ask. Can you walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's definitely not a simple kind of one item task. Astrodigital definitely does build um, vertically integrated buses um, for for various different types of payloads, but we kind of adopted this mission as a service um, ethos, uh, which is really more of a play on that software as a service uh, mentality. But essentially, you can come to Astrodigital with either an idea or your own payload, and we can get that payload to to orbit. It almost always starts with a, a very heavy technical design phase, but what a lot of people don't realize is in the background of that, and almost the same. Um, schedule timeline is the length it takes to to get regulatory approval to launch. What does that look like? 
<laughs> uh, well, right now, uh, I mean, Astrid is primarily in the new space um, kind of side of, of the space industry. And I think a lot of smaller companies that are not experienced with getting the regulatory approvals from the SEC, um, NOAA, if they're doing some sort of imaging, the FAA, depending on whether they're an OTV in nature or, or uh, any of the other potential regulatory hurdles. So that's something that we have a lot of experience with and we're able to help those that not had that experience before. It's not a small lift because a lot of companies do get stuck at that stage, is my understanding. Yeah, it's an unfortunate that we hear about the financial value of, of death, but uh, there's definitely a regulatory hurdle to it as well. But we've we've seen uh, a lot more success than, than issues, and uh, I think the FCC is doing everything that they need to, to improve on being able to meet the demand that's just skyrocketed over the last couple of years. Well phrased. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So after after the regulatory, or actually I should say during, because I'm sure that, that takes quite some time. While that's going on, what, what else is happening? The, uh, the hardest part about starting a program is just depending on the payload requirements. And when I say payload, it means whether it's a customer bringing some sort of earth sensor or an RF payload that has some crazy new requirement that's just never been flown before. All of the, the the bus, which provides, and when I say bus, I'm, I'm talking about the TTNC radios, the high-speed radios, whether it's K-band or, or X-band, electrical power system, flight computer, everything that you need to operate a payload, all those need to be designed and customized to be able to meet the payload requirements. So that's like the first thing that, that really gets started. It's almost a, a feasibility study to make sure that our bus or variations of our bus can meet the requirements from, from the customer. Okay, so fast forwarding a little bit. So after that stage, I'm sure there's a lot of iteration that's going on. I'm drastically oversimplifying what it must be incredibly complex. So the the interesting part of this design process is it, it is almost standardized um, across the industry now to get to these various milestones. And you'll see articles in Space News about how X company has reached uh, and closed out all the action items from a, a critical design review. It's cool. Like, congratulations, you've gotten to that point. But like, it's really just a design effort. Like, you still have to build the thing. But a lot goes into these various uh, milestone reviews. Um, typically, you start off with a preliminary design review. That's kind of the first roadblock or stop to make sure that everything that everyone is designing to is uh, compatible with what the actual mission needs to look like. After that, there's a quite a bit more analysis that goes into this next approach, which is going into the CDR or critical design review. And at that point, the, the goal is to depart from the critical design review, knowing exactly what the spacecraft looks like, what it's composed of, uh, what it's going to be capable of doing, and what the limitations are and, and risks are. So that's like the hardest part about the design process is just getting to that, that milestone. So it is a big, uh, it's a big achievement, but it's definitely not one that we feel like we need to claim on Space News. Or... One of the many things that Astro Digital does is also working with I'm probably not phrasing this correctly, but I know one of the missions that you all launched was on a SpaceX transporter. Working with an, a supplier like that, for lack of a better term, what is that like? What What's involved there? Yeah, getting to launch is, is my personal favorite part. Um, getting to go to Cape Canaveral or, or Vandenberg and being in some of these actually like really old buildings that that SpaceX has leased from from the Air Force or Space Force. Um, it's, it's, it's humbling because you get to just see kind of a little bit of history of how we got there. And here's like a small technology company out of Silicon Valley 
<laughs> in the the same bay that like a, a national security mission was built. Um, so it's just cool to to see that launch is is unique. Right now, uh, we're primarily launching on on the transporter missions, um, and a lot of members of the the space industry or the new space industry are. Those are the most reliable and cheapest vehicles to launch on. So we've uh, we've benefited from being on almost every one. I think we missed one or one or two, uh, but we were on the first transporter one. Um, got bumped off of that, unfortunately. But we're on the next one, um, and we've just been a a fun iterative process with Falcon Nines. The hardest working rocket there is. Yeah, that's a heck of a track record. Being on almost almost every single transporter launch, that's fantastic. Any learnings, any wisdom you want to share from that experience? Because that's pretty unique. Being very clear, concise, and open with everyone, whether it's your your customer, um, whether it's SpaceX themselves, whether it's your mission integrator that's typically interfacing with with SpaceX, it's very rare that a program just goes smooth like so smoothly that there's never anything to talk about so like almost every mission integration there's there's some sort of question um whether it's from a customer side about when does fairings when does the fairing close when's the last opportunity to charge batteries that kind of thing um and then there are questions from SpaceX like hey we have this question on your environment on your environmental test report can you help with that so we've learned that there's just don't be gray about it. Don't don't be vague. Like be clear, concise. Just say this is exactly what we did, because at the end of the day, no one is looking to like to, to find fault. They're just trying to find a solution to make sure that everyone's getting to orbit safely. Well said. When we're talking about programs or missions that are as complex, multifaceted as the ones that you work on, my mind boggles a little bit at not just how many moving parts there are, but how much adjustment must be made, and also how much pressure that must be to work on something like this. So for anyone else who wants to do what you do, what would you say they need to have to succeed as a person working in something as complicated as what you're doing? Uh, well, just having a stress management technique is very helpful. Um, space is hard. Everyone says it. So everyone needs to find a way just to be personally capable of doing it. But I, I think really it's also, I mean, it's, a, it's an exciting new industry. So like if you need to reach out for help to someone that, that might have previously had greater experience working on it, uh, on something that, that you're working on, reach out because it's very rare that that people will, will say, absolutely not, I'm not interested in talking about that. So unfortunately, I mean, the kind of secretive nature of, of the, the aerospace industry prevents a lot of people to do that externally, but I think that's improving. I think we're getting a little bit more more clear and uh, I think it's just a, it's exciting because it's so new, but a lot of times uh, when things start out, they're harder than they need to be. And I want to make sure I also give you the floor, so to speak. If there's anything about Astro Digital or anything that you're working on that you'd like to mention, I want to give you that opportunity. So, I mean, Astro Digital and, and CubeSat, SmallSat industry is so new that we're just starting to scrape the surface of what's possible. So Falcon 9 was a great first step and being able to do these dedicated rideshare missions has been helpful. And all the other launch providers, whether it's Astra or Rocket Lab or or any of the other ones that are developing their next rocket, they're going to combine with Starship and that's going to be the explosion. I mean, it's it's going to be such a difference between where we were at 20 years ago or, or 23 years ago, whenever um, Cal Poly launched their first CubeSat to now and seeing that the access to space is so so possible 
I think it'll be looking at how many applications are available for download on an iPhone right now. And that was available as a result of uh, the Apple iPhone. So uh, Starship happens and increases the opportunity for individuals to get to, to orbit. That will just be the, the next uh, leap. Jack, thank you so much for walking me through what you do, how you do it. I mean, not an easy task, but I'm glad you're doing it. So thank you, Jack. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thank you, Marie. And we'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. And I've got a little casual vexillology for you today. In the United States, we're commemorating Flag Day. It's not a holiday that we get off from work. But it is the anniversary of the day that our flag, the good old Stars and Stripes, was officially adopted in 1777. It's changed a little bit since then. We've added quite a few more stars, one for every state, 13 then and 15 now. So we thought we'd do a little space flag trivia for you today. Now, famously, the Apollo 11 crew planted a U.S. flag on the moon's surface, though it wasn't the only one. Recent flybys of the moon by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spotted the flags from 12, 16, and 17, but Apollo 11's famously photographed flag couldn't find it, presumed lost. Now, those were some of the first flags in space, but they have been by no means the last. As more countries have put astronauts into space, inevitably flags make their way to suborbital and orbital space as well. One of my personal favorite flags in space photos was actually courtesy of ESA astronaut Thomas Pesquet, who brought a flag from every country in the world aboard the International Space Station on his second mission there. He did that to mark the start of the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. It's a photo worth looking up. Seeing the normally rather dull-looking experiment-packed ISS filled with an explosion of bright colors representing all the nations of the world, it's quite something to see. And it's not just nation flags that go to space, of course. It's organizations, military branches, and even a few state flags. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our amazing T-minus show producer, Alice Carruth, has a New Mexico flag in her office that went to space on the first human space flight via the VSS Unity from Spaceport America in 2021. I get to see it every time we video chat. It's very cool. And that's it for T-minus for June 14th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. 
N2K's strategic workforce intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>